Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for that intro, Susan. That was so nice. Uh, boy, you know, my, I've been at Harpeth Heights uh, a lot of times, but never during this particular time slot. Uh, you know, my normal day-to-day job, Susan kind of alluded to it, is uh, working with all of our Davidson County campuses, you know, from East Nashville uh, over to here in Harpeth Heights. And, you know, that involves personnel, finances, uh, facilities, uh, staff development, uh, and what, whatever other fire needs putting out, that's why I'm here. And so, and I've worked with Brentwood now for about a year and a half. I moved here from Dallas, where I spent 20 years at a church down there as executive pastor, and uh, enjoyed that. Enjoyed my time in Dallas, but really felt called to this area, and was so happy when uh, I got to come on staff. Um, at the church uh, at Avenue South and, and all the campuses in, in the North region, as we call it. And so today, as I was uh, preparing to preach, I called one of my friends in Dallas who's a pastor. He preaches every week, you know, unlike me, who does it, you know, a few times a year. I'm, I'm usually in front of a small group teaching leadership or something like that. But I called my friend Miguel, and I said, hey, Miguel, guess what? You're not going to believe it. They're actually going to let me preach in Nashville. Yeah, they're going to let me do it. And he said, Bill, what, what are you preaching about? And I said, well, uh, we're in this series uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to be preaching out of Luke 18, uh, a story some of you probably have read before, uh, what we call the rich young ruler. And he said, ah, oh, Bill, that's great. That's the story of your life. I went, oh, my life. I thought... I'm not sure whether I, we kind of had a good laugh about that, but I, I knew what he meant. What he meant was, but you've had a pretty good life, you know, for a, a kid from a small coal mining town in the hills of western Pennsylvania. Uh, you've moved around a bit. You've gotten to do a few things with your life, and now you're living the dream in Nashville, Tennessee. That must be so nice. But as I hung up the phone with Miguel and I thought about the rich young ruler story, The rich young ruler, I'm not sure I want to be called the rich young ruler. I'm not sure that's something that is a compliment, even though he was simply joking. And so as we start today, we're going to read the passage of the rich young ruler in just a second. Let me ask you that question. I want you to think about that as we get going. Are you the rich young ruler? How is this story going to speak to you? Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. You'll see I'm using this iPad today. I like to use that when I preach, not because I don't believe in the the Bible it's so good, but as I've gotten older, I can't read it without my glasses. And on here, it's on a big print. I can see it. So forgive me for that. Any way we read the Bible is good. Am I right? Okay. Let's look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It said, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one's good but one God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. Well, when Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come Follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we've left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, I assure you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and in eternal life in the age to come. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we talk about this experience that you had, Lord Jesus, that you'll open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of how we truly get eternal life, to the truth that there's some things in our lives that can take the place of you at times, how great wealth though can be both a hindrance and a help if we use it correctly. So I pray that you would let our hearts be open to the message you want us each individually to hear today. And you'll be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, pretty interesting. I always tell people, whenever you're reading any of these stories out of the Bible that go on, it's really good to kind of put it in context, right? To see what happens before and after what's going on. And in the story right before this, Jesus is hanging out with the disciples, as he often did. And there were a number of small children who were playing around, and some of them were trying to kind of, you know, get next to Jesus, and they're goofing off, you know, and the kids do, having fun, playing around. And the disciples are like, hey, you, you kids, kind of stay away here, you know. This is an important man over here, Jesus, you know, he doesn't need to be messing around. And Jesus says, hey, hey, guys, don't pre- prevent them from coming to me because people that are going to come to the kingdom of God, inherit the kingdom of God, need to come with the same attitude as a child. So Luke lets us in on a little secret here that our attitude about how we come to Jesus is important. But in case we think that "Mm, it's just about having the right humble attitude, on the heels of it we have this story of a man who comes and what's he say? What must I do? What is it that I have to do to inherit eternal life? Kind of interesting because if we inherit something, we normally don't have to do anything. We just have to be born into the right family. And, you know, as fate would have it, we might inherit something. But he wants to do something. I think Jesus is letting us know here, or Luke rather, that it's pretty important not only that we come with the right attitude, but it's still not doing things. It's not about what man does. It's about what God does for us. We're going to see that in the story. This attitude that we have is crucial, but again, it's about what God does. This story uh, is told in three different books of the New Testament. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about a lot of the same things that happened in Jesus' life. They just talk about it from different perspectives. And so here we have Luke's version. You notice this story is often called the rich young ruler. But all we know in this passage from Luke is that he's rich and he's a ruler. It's Matthew that tells us that he is young. Mark tells us a couple of other things, but they all agree on one very important point. The man was wealthy. He was well off. He was rich. 
I'm not going to try to argue today that, oh, in America we're all rich because we're all, you know, we all have a certain standard. It's way above the world standard. No, this guy was much above the average standard. This guy was doing well. When he came up, they would have recognized that he was rich. That's why they, wrote, they all wrote that down, you know. The cut of his robes kind of tailored. He didn't just buy those off the rack. You know, he had those perfectly done. He probably had nice shoes, might have had some gold jewelry on, you know. His haircut was a little more expensive than the others. He had a four, maybe even a five-car garage. I don't know. He had things that showed that he was wealthy, and people understood that when he came up. They looked at him, and they knew that he had all the things that this world could provide. And yet, he asks Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life. He'd been trying to keep all the commandments. That's pretty apparent from the fact that when he, he asks Jesus, what do I have to do? Jesus says, well, he points right to the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you notice the commandments that Jesus lays out, I think, are pretty interesting because, you know, there are were, there were ten of them, but six of them relate from, I call them the horizontal ones, the ones that how I relate to you and you relate to me and you relate to your, uh, your neighbor and your brother and your sister, your friend, you know, all those ones. Not about the ones how we relate to God. The funny thing is, in the first century and before, the, the Jewish people didn't just think about the Ten Commandments because in the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Hebrew Scriptures, there are over 600 commands, and they believed that they could keep actually every one of them. And here's a man who I honestly think was trying to keep them all, but yet he must have had just a little sliver of doubt that he was actually doing it because he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, have you done these things? He's like, yes, I've done them. He says, well, there's one more thing that you should do, sell all that you have. And with that one little question, that one little statement, Jesus starts to turn the guy's world upside down because he starts to recognize maybe he hasn't kept them after all. Did he recognize that before he came? I don't think so. About uh, five years ago, I had the privilege of teaching my daughter how to drive. And if you've ever taught somebody how to drive, um, it can be pretty, uh, pretty tense, pretty difficult, pretty scary at times. And I told her, as I would tell anybody, that there's one primary rule of driving that I think is the end-all best thing you can do when you drive. If you want to keep insurance rates low, keep your car from getting in an accident, this one thing is going to save you time, money, distress like you can't believe. If there was a Bill's Book of Driving, this would be in it. There's not one, by the way. But if there was, this rule would be in it. And that rule is this. Never, ever, under any circumstances, drive in another person's blind spot. That's right, blind spot. You know, that part where when you're in the car and you're going along, there's a spot to your left and to your right where even if you glance in the mirror, you can't tell that there's a vehicle there. All cars have them. And if 
you're driving on a road beside somebody and you get into that blind spot, you are in danger. I would tell my daughter, don't do that. If you're going to pass somebody, when you get up to where you're going to be in the blind spot, pass quickly. Get past them. Don't sit in that blind spot. Either stay back far enough where when they cut over, they're not going to run into you, or move up enough where they can see you out of their peripheral vision on the side. Because if you get into that blind spot, that's how accidents happen. The government tells us that over 800,000 accidents happen each year from people being in the blind spot. I don't know who counts those. It sounds like a lot, but but boy, somebody's doing their work to tell you that that many happen. And here is a story about a guy that has what? He has a blind spot. I don't think he saw that he was sinning against God. We all we all have blind spots. If I asked you what is your blind spot, you couldn't even tell me because by definition, we're blind to them. But people around us can tell us what our blind spot is, maybe a trusted friend. For those of you who are married, your spouse is pretty good at telling you what your blind spot is. Am I right? Yeah. They can tell you. They know what your blind spot is. For some people, it's wealth. could be something else. Jesus reveals this man's blind spot when he asks him, hey, sell all that you have. See, wealth is his blind spot. He didn't recognize that he wanted more. He's breaking what? The one commandment that Jesus doesn't list, the tenth one about coveting, about wanting more, wanting what other people have. And by doing so, he's also making riches, making wealth his idol. So he's breaking the first commandment, have no other gods before me. See, these dominoes start to fall, and the man recognizes, hmm, I'm in trouble here. I'm not able to do that, and I don't really want to sell everything I have. He doesn't seem to want to do it. And so, while eternal life doesn't depend on an empty bank account, thank the Lord, right? It does depend on this central orientation of our life. Let me say that again. While eternal life doesn't depend on an empty bank account, it does depend on the central orientation of our life. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here, and that's why Jesus asks us to give up what we idolize. You notice that the rich young ruler simply goes away, goes away sad. You see why I didn't want my friend Miguel telling me that I'm the rich young ruler? I don't want to go away sad. This man's the only record we have in the Bible of somebody who goes away from Jesus worse off than when he came. He's worse off because now he knows exactly what to do. He knows the truth, but he won't do it. Look what it says in verse 24. It said, seeing that, he became sad. And Jesus said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who can be saved? He replied, what's impossible with men is possible with God. There's so many things that we might idolize that might be in our own blind spot, family, uh, various achievements. But I think that it's so easy to talk about money because that's one of the things that we naturally idolize. It's everywhere we look. We gravitate toward it. 
We always look at something and think, ah, maybe I'd like to have that. We're little kids, and one of our friends has a better bicycle, a bigger basket on the front than we do, and we want it. They've got a trampoline, and I don't have one. That guy's wearing an Apple Watch. I only have a version 2. I need a version 6. I had a guy drive into my backyard the other day. It was doing some work, and I opened my garage. He's like, oh, you got an old Jeep. I'd love to have an old Jeep. Atticus was over the house a few months ago, and he pulled out his new Martin guitar, and I thought, I need a Martin guitar. Yeah. I looked at Martin guitars for two days online. I didn't buy one, but I looked at them. I thought about it. We always seem to want what somebody else has. It's just natural. And riches make it impossible to get eternal life, right? No, not impossible, but difficult. Why is that? It's because riches cloud our thinking. They get in the way of things. When we are, we look at the rich, sometimes they think they're better, perhaps, than the poor. They think they've kind of earned it themselves. They think that they're more blessed. We put it on the internet, they're hashtag blessed. They're doing well. Even the Jewish people believed for centuries that if people were wealthy, that was the blessing of God. So it's not anything new. People recognize that to have money, it is a blessing in some cases. And so they thought that. They also might conclude that since they have wealth, they're able to do everything they want Just lose sight of the future, that this life is very temporary. The older I get, the more I know that. I look around this room. Some of you are just starting a life. Others are approaching those waning years, and you recognize how quick it goes, right? It's not long, but some people don't think about the future at all. Peter, always the one to jump in jumps in here to the conversation, and he says, hey, Jesus, you remember, uh, we gave up everything. You remember that, right? Interesting that Jesus didn't really ask them to go sell their boats and sell their nets and sell everything they had. I think it's because wealth was was really not Peter, James, John. It wasn't their idol. That, That wasn't something that they were stuck on. They probably had other issues, but here... Peter brings it up. Jesus says, "Ah, you're not going to regret it, Pete. You're not going to regret giving up everything and following me. Everyone who gives up some of the normal comforts of life finds that they get so much more. It's frightening how often people will choose the here and now, the temporary quick solution over something that lasts longer. Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven. And he says that when we do so, when we give up our idols now, we actually get something that's much better. Look at verses 29 and 30. He said, I assure you, there's no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. A lot of people think that when they accept Christ, they've got the eternity secure. And that's true. 
But Jesus tells us here it's a lot more than just the future that I'm securing. I'm securing some benefits right now. One of the greatest lessons you can learn in life, one of the greatest lessons is that the best things in life and the things that are the most important are things that money can't buy. Those are hard lessons to learn. We usually learn them through painful situations. I think I learned that lesson about 30 years ago. My father passed away. There was nothing I could do to stop it. I thought about that. Then 20 years ago, my firstborn daughter died. I learned that lesson again. And about 10 years ago, my mom passed away. And a couple years ago, my brother died. It seems like God teaches me that lesson every 10 years. He's like, come on, Bill, you just don't get it. He's probably right. Because left to our own devices, we gravitate toward other things. But when we go through difficult situations, if we're hashtag blessed enough to learn from that, we recognize it's not about money. Mm -mm. It's about something else. It's about this kind of peace, this security that we get when God comes into our life and rescues us from the need to have all these other things. Jesus says you're going to get so much more when you give up what you have temporarily. Deeper spiritual comfort, better relationships, friendships, get the chance to serve the Lord. And man, those benefits are priceless. You know, sometimes after we have a really difficult situation, if we're lucky, if we've been involved in a, in a good small group, life group, church group of believers, boy, they really help us to process what we're feeling and to get through those things. Well, if Chris and I have been in some groups like that over the years, it's one of the main benefits of being in a small group. This isn't really a small group sermon, but I'm going to give Susan a bit of a shout-out. You need to be in a small group, people, because when the storms of life come, and they do come, you need people around you. You need people to come alongside you. You know, Jesus had talked there about how sometimes people have to give up, what, their home, their mothers, their brothers, their sisters. And in a sense, when you come to Christ, you'll often find that you're giving up some people in your life. There are people that won't look at you the same. There are people that won't treat you the same, even in your own family. And that's why it's so important to have others around you as the family of God. So if I had to give you one thing to do today, I would say, you know what? Set some relational goals. Yeah, relational. Goals for you to make relationships with other people. Why do I need a goal? You need a goal because people never or rarely, I won't say never, I don't like saying never, Rarely. They rarely drift to places that they want to be, right? That's why I think goals are important. People rarely drift to places where they want to be. And so set a relational goal. And that relational goal would look something like this. Maybe once a month, you decide to go have coffee with a friend, invite somebody over for dinner, have a game night, bake cookies, go eat pizza, have a jam session. This is Nashville. We can have jam sessions here, I've heard. And so you can, you can get together with other people, right? Develop those relationships. How much work would that take to try to get somebody new into your life? Because people need you. 
Some of you are great at that. You think, I have enough friends. People need you to be their brothers and sisters and mothers and cousins, fathers, aunts and uncles. They need you. Sometimes you don't realize that, how important these relationships are. I was reading Psalm 23 this morning, kind of randomly, believe it or not. And when Jesus says in there, hey, I prefer, prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. I thought to myself, sometimes the world can kind of be your enemy. But who's at that table? It's not everybody I know, but it's people sharing a meal, getting together with people. There's something to that. So I'm going to challenge you this morning that that's one way you can quit idolizing other things. Work on these relationships. That's one of the main benefits in the here and now. Yes, we have eternal life in the future, but it's the here and now where you can make such a difference. Some people think that whoever has the most toys wins in the end. It's simply not true, guys. It's simply not true. What is true is that when we give up our idols... When we follow Jesus, we get so much more now and in eternity. So hard to do. But you know what? What is difficult for man is absolutely possible with the Almighty God. Let's pray.